0: Well, hello there, listeners. It's Susie New here from the Australian Society of Anesthetists, and welcome to our podcast. It's called Australian Anesthesia, and it's where we talk all things relevant to anesthesia in Australia. In this episode, I am chatting with George Yee, who is a first-year registrar in anesthesia in Melbourne. I can say from the outset, it wasn't an easy process for George to get onto the anesthesia training program, And I know that there are a few of you out there who are also in the same position where you've applied for a job and you've missed out. I'm terribly sorry if you're in that position, but I do hope that there's something in this episode for you. George took a number of attempts to get on the program and he shares with us the things that ultimately led to his success. Not only was he successful in getting a position in the training program that he was aiming for, but he actually got offered three accredited positions in various programs and states. So his strategies did yield tangible results. For those of you who are already on the program or even completed your training, congratulations, well done. This episode might be another blast from the past. It certainly seems much more competitive to get on the program nowadays. So hopefully by listening to this episode, you'll be able to understand what some of our more junior colleagues are going through. All right, let's get into it. Thanks so much for doing this with me today.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for having me.
0: Your first year this year? Yes. Ah, good. How's it going?
1: Yeah, no, really good. Good mix of different things, all the general things that you would expect, but also a lot of peds and obstetrics. did my first epidural last week, so that was really good fun.
0: Oh, well done. Congratulations. These are some of the fun things you get to do when you're a first year registrar. Yeah, exactly. So at what point did you realize that you wanted to become an anaesthetist?
1: It was actually in my final year as a med student, I did an elective as part of medical school where they get you to follow a consultant around and I essentially followed one of the anesthetists there. Not to sound ungrateful for my medical education, but that rotation was by far the most enjoyable time I had during medical school. And I was thinking, wow, this is actually a found what I wanted to do because it was just such a great mix of procedural things, acute medicine, physiology, pharmacology. You give a drug, you see the effect.
0: Oh, that's good. I oh, was so glad that you're on the program. That makes me very happy. So you knew from medical schools. Did you start positioning your intern and second year jobs, et cetera, from then on with a goal of getting into anesthesia?
1: Yeah. So unfortunately, by the time I did the elective, I had already had my intern position. So I probably would have chosen a slightly different path. But from then on, though, I tried as much to do things that would be useful for anesthesia. So I did the NAPCAT course, which is the um, airway course for anesthetic trainees as an intern. Wow. It was actually really useful, even though it probably was a bit ahead of my training level. But I still, to this day, I'm so happy that i learned how to use a bronchoscope that early on because the moment that opportunity came up as a second year in ICU for that first rotation, I was like, can I do this procedure? And those were opportunities that otherwise I would have missed out on.
0: That's good. And a good plug for NatCat there too. So you did a general second year and was that a mix of medical and surgical jobs?
1: It somehow ended up being mostly surgical with crit care stuff. Did
0: you then go into a crit care third year job? Correct. And so critical care jobs have a mix of ICU, anaesthesia and emergency. Yes. When is the earliest that you can apply to get on the anaesthetic training program?
1: The college only requires two years after medical school before you're eligible to be part of the college to apply. But realistically speaking, the vast majority of people will have needed to complete a third year as a critical care HMO before they would realistically have a shot.
0: So, HMO, the stands for Hospital Medical Officer, which is often used interchangeably with the word resident. So, when you're doing your quick care HMO year, you're usually a third year resident or three years out of PGY3. So, when did you first apply to join the college?
1: So, the first time I put in an application was at the end of my second year. So, as an HMO2, even though I essentially knew I didn't really have a shot, I'd asked around and said, is it going to put a dent in my chances. And the supervisor of training I spoke to said, no, 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 like it shows you're interested. Based on your experience, you probably won't even get an interview, but it it shows that you're keen and there's nothing wrong with that. And you can practice putting together CV and uh, practice getting references together. So I did apply, but my proper application would have been after my critical care year.
0: So you applied again in your quick care year? Mm -hmm. to hopefully get on the next year. Mm -hmm. And we obviously know the outcome. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, you didn't get a position at the time. Mm. Why do you think that was?
1: Look, I've thought about this obviously a lot. And I think it's just a combination of things. I guess I didn't really know what I was up against. I probably underestimated the process. I had always heard people say, oh, if you get an interview, then the interview is all that matters. I just hadn't realized how much needed to go into it because I I was of the view that having spoken to other, you know, anesthetists, they seemed to think that I was well-suited for the role. And I thought maybe if I just be myself in the interview, that's all it really ought to take because that's who I've been in in front of all these clinical supervisors. And if they seem to think I'm up for it, then that should be enough. I was gravely mistaken (laughs) because I think yes, there is value in being yourself, but this process is so competitive. The margins are are so thin between people. And at least for the Victorian scheme, you really only have about 15 minutes to showcase who you are to people who've never met you. And they interview maybe 40 or 50 people that day. If you really want to stand out, you do need to go the extra mile and prepare potentially months in advance. I didn't realize what actually really needed to go into it. And Ultimately, it's probably a product that I didn't speak to enough people to get that understanding.
0: So while we're talking about the interview, can you describe what it's like and what your strategy was for it?
1: Yeah, so it's really the build-up of it and the anticipation can really get your nerves going. So potentially working out strategies to manage those, if that's something that you have found inhibits your performance. But in terms of the actual content and how you structure the interview, I think there's this growing trend towards these behavioral type interviews where they say, tell us about a time when you had a conflict with a colleague or something or other. What I found is the star L method. Essentially, you start with what the situation was, painting a brief picture, telling the interviewers what the task had to be done was, and then the action, which is what you did. A big challenge is to try and keep these answers succinct and easy to follow as possible because you only really do have a two or three-minute window to essentially give this whole answer. Probably the most important aspects of it is the R and the L, which is the results of what you did and what you really learned from the experience. And potentially that last part could be by far and away the most important aspects. And I've actually had a supervisor of training say, one of the candidates during the interview gave a response that was essentially they'd made an error and it caused X, Y, Z consequences. And it was how they dealt with it, with the patient, with their senior colleagues, what they learned and how they now will never repeat those mistakes again. That was what made the answer really compelling. And obviously there's potential risks with going down this path of saying that you've made a mistake, but being genuine, open and having those fairly impactful answers can actually be quite effective in the interview.
0: That's a really good point. We don't expect people to be perfect, but we Mm. really love to see that people have the capacity to learn. Absolutely.
1: And also don't forget there's other aspects that are the in vogue topics that you could potentially read about yourself as well. So the ASA magazines will have all these current topics of discussion. A couple of years ago, I was asked a question about environmental sustainability and how the anaesthetist you know, plays a role in that. These are all topics that you can read about and prepare for. And it's not just all about the typical interview questions as well.
0: Yeah, good point. Our most recent issue of Australian anaesthetist was on the National Scientific Congress. This is always what our October or September edition is about. And I wrote a lot about sexual harassment and gender (laughs) inequities Mm. in anaesthesia. So maybe Mm. that might come up as an interview question. Who knows? (laughs) Mm. I've got nothing to do with the interview, (laughs) so please don't take that as a hint. (laughs) I should mention that we have that recording from the session that we did earlier in the year with Lynn Hemmings, who's the interview expert, so people can go back and watch that if they want to have a brush up on how to approach the interview. And she does talk about the STAR technique. I haven't heard it called the STAR-L technique, but of course that makes sense. When you weren't successful, did you get any feedback as to why?
1: Mm. Yeah, I did. I did. And essentially it came down to small areas that I needed to improve on in my CV, but mostly The interview performance. The feedback that I got was, we thought you looked a bit miserable or uh, uninterested during the interview. We want you to show more enthusiasm and want you to smile more. And I just recalled thinking back to the interview going, oh my God, my entire time, I was just trying to come up with a coherent answer.
0: Who gives you the feedback?
1: Supervisor of training who was on the interview panel, I, I sought them out and, and spoke to them. But certainly it's fairly typical for them to be happy to give you feedback. So certainly reach out to them.
0: How many interviewers are there on the panel?
1: For Victoria, I believe it's five. For other states, it has varied, but it's usually four or five. And mm-hmm. they're essentially just different. And these are this representing different hospitals within the same network.
0: And would you expect that you might know one or two people on the panel?
1: Yeah, I think it's relatively common, especially if you've been around a little bit. You would certainly recognise a few. And at least in the Victorian one, they do tend to not actively score you if they know you from that parent hospital to try and be a bit more impartial.
0: So let's move forward. So you're PGY6 now. Mm -hmm. When did you apply to get onto the program this most recent time?
1: Uh, yeah, so this time, the application would have been submitted around June 2020. And it was essentially my third attempt. I didn't want to really take any chances. I kind of went all out and applied for every training scheme across the ANSCA network. So what's that for in New Zealand plus Victoria, South Australia, Western Australia, ACT and Tasmania. So I applied for all of them. That whole process forced me to go through a lot of extra material, thinking up answers to certain questions that I workshopped and refined in order to put down as written answers for a lot of the applications. And that helped the interview performance as well.
0: You sound like you were seriously considering if you got a job into one of these training programs, you would have moved.
1: Correct. Because I realized that I would be happier in a different state doing this specialty than I would be staying at home but doing something else.
0: Wow. There you go. That's a great realisation to have as well. It's a great specialty and welcome. What did you do? What were the keys to your success this time around?
1: I think this time I, number one, filled in any holes that I had in my CV or any weaknesses. So early 2019, I started working on a research project as first author. Although I didn't anticipate it taking that long, it did eventually get published. Well done. Published uh, in March this year. So it did take a good while.
0: Yep. Congratulations though. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Another aspect was trying to maintain connections with people who could be a referee. And one of the years when I was working as an ICU registrar, I came back on days off and just did some extra lists in theatre. One, just to get experience and because genuinely it was just a lot of fun to do anesthesia and uh, two is to try and keep connected um, with referees who could then actually remember, oh, actually, I know who you are or actually support you and I'm going to bat for you a bit because they obviously see that you're keen and, and you can demonstrate that you're capable as well. So I think that was something probably a little bit un- unusual to essentially volunteer your time.
0: What are your thoughts on picking the right referee?
1: I think... It can be very tempting to choose the person with a really fancy title, the head of department or the professor. But in the end, if you pick a consultant this that you've worked with a lot, they know you and they genuinely support you. And you'll know because they're the ones who will randomly text you out of the blue saying how things are going or are the ones who will say they're going to do something for you and actually do it straight away. If they're able to actually write relevant and pertinent things in the comments of these referee forms, it'll make you stand out a lot more than someone who just gives you five out of five for everything and says, this is an excellent candidate, full stop. That will, will make a much bigger impact on your application.
0: Anything else? So you did some research, which is pretty incredible amount of research to actually also be published. You came and volunteered your time.
1: And then the main thing, I guess, was interview. Part of it was just putting my head down and writing out answers to all these sample questions that obviously float around everywhere and trying to cover every possible answer because it might seem excessive, but if you do have a mental framework for every question that has previously been asked, there's a good chance they will ask something similar and you actually have something that you can come up with and you don't need to spend time and effort structuring your answer. And I would also admit that I'm probably a bit bit on the shy side of a bit introverted and the whole experience of sitting in front of five different people who are staring at you and you're trying to come up with a reasonable, succinct answer in two minutes while still conveying this sense of enthusiasm and everything is is really challenging. And I, I kind of sat down and either practiced with colleagues and friends or just got my selfie camera up on my phone and recorded myself and uh, doing practice interview questions and just repeated that process over and over, trying to figure out what aspects I can improve on. Ultimately, interviewing is a skill and it can be practiced, it can be learned and improved upon over time.
0: I think I hear a few things there that you spent a lot of time looking at yourself and what your strengths and your weaknesses were, and then really honing in on your weaknesses to strengthen them, which paid off, which is great. And I think there's a lot of reflection that goes in that, which will stand you well, not just for this process, but I think into the future. But then I also hear that you worked incredibly hard publishing a paper, working voluntarily. Do you think others have had to also work that hard? Is this across the board?
1: Look, yeah, I I do speak to some different people in their various experiences. And I think some are certainly lucky that they don't end up needing to try multiple times. Some of that simply does come down to how well they do at the interview. Because if you do perform very well that first go, you don't end up needing to come back and filling holes in your CV. Because if you do get through that hurdle, that's all that really is needed. But there's certainly other people... And I've seen their CVs and they're extremely, extremely impressive. Some people have dozens of publications. They've been working on that since medical school.
0: Wow. That's not generally, though.
1: No, no. It, I don't think it's a every second person, but <laughs> you know, they're, they're certainly out there. Wow. And yeah, and some of them have had some time working as a surgical registrar or things like that and have decided, actually, this is not the life for me and they've come back to follow a different path. And they've accrued a lot of impressive things on their CV as well. And and throwing their hat in the ring is a significant factor when they do have to sit down and pick out of a list of 100 or so extremely worthy applicants. And it's very hard to just say, oh, we won't worry too much about one person having a PhD and the other one not.
0: When you first applied and you weren't successful, what did you do in terms of approaching work? What were your thoughts about what jobs you were going to do?
1: Yeah, so I have to admit, I was so optimistic the first time round that I probably didn't plan enough backup options. It, it, it was a classic case of hubris and I ended up really scrambling for a bit, trying to figure out what I was going to do because I thought that my chances for the training program were quite good. I, I think I applied for maybe one or two backup jobs and that was it. I always knew that one of the pathways might be to work as an intensive care registrar, but I hadn't actually actively applied for those positions. Um, so it was you know, a bit of a shock that I found myself in that situation. I was really quite lucky that there was a vacancy due to, I think it was maternity leave or something to that effect. So what I would say to people is always hope for the best, but plan for the very worst. Always have a plan A, B, C, D, and E.
0: You're sounding like an anaesthetist there.
1: <laughs> That's right. And, and, and I think over time, that kind of sense of maturity does come. Because you know. I,
0: I can imagine that there might be this feeling of, okay, I didn't get the job that I want. Mm. I've now got to spend a year doing something but I want to make that time count. ICU registrar job is one option. Mm. Do you know what other options there are that people might consider?
1: Yeah, at least in Victoria, there's a small handful of both single year accredited as well as non-accredited anaesthetic registrar jobs. So they're kind of scattered around the place. There probably is some degree of hesitancy from certain intensive care units around the place that They're wanting to prioritise people who are committed to the ICU training programme rather than people who are wanting to do anaesthesia. Otherwise, they're always looking for ED registrars and especially people with airway skills. And so that certainly is another pathway. The main thing in the end really is to maintain those connections to the anaesthetic world.
0: And there there might be more around the country, I suppose.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's several uh, unaccredited positions throughout New South Wales as well. They're all independent, like separate applications.
0: So how would people go about finding out about these jobs that are single-year accredited or non-accredited jobs?
1: You should be able to find them online through the usual job search websites. The college doesn't tend to advertise them on their own website, the unaccredited ones. Otherwise, word of mouth has been where I've gotten knowledge of some of these positions. And certainly for New South Wales, their unaccredited ones are all on the New South Wales health website. So they do pop up there.
0: Okay. That's good to know.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I was initially made aware through word of mouth, but they certainly do exist if you search for them.
0: Speaking of word of mouth, where did you go to find out information about how to get on the program?
1: A lot of the stuff that I figured out initially was either through speaking to friends or colleagues who were already on training, or the Victorian program has an information session that I think they run in May, which is fairly useful. They run through a lot of what the requirements are and what they're looking for and how the process works and what they want from your CV and all that kind of stuff. And they have a Facebook page as well. There's always the official stance. And then you speak to trainees who have gone through the process and they will give you their kind of view. But I think that you've got to be on the ground and talking to people and that's going to be the most important way of finding that kind of information.
0: So it sounds like there's a couple of things there. That The best thing is just to keep talking and keep asking people. Get as many different opinions as you can. There's a few different places you can go for information depending on the different states. So be prepared to look at things like official sites, but also things like Facebook. But also I think coming back to the earlier one is also being able to reflect and identify where your potential deficiencies are and what you need to strengthen, because it's going to be different for different people, because there are people who have graduated from prior degrees and have PhDs and so forth, and you're never going to be competing with them on their level. But perhaps there's different things and we're a diverse community in anaesthesia We haven't talked about courses. What are your thoughts there about doing things like ALS, BASIC, EMST, EMAC, etc.? People who don't know those acronyms, there are a whole bunch of courses that you can do, short courses, two, three-day courses related to anaesthesia.
1: Overall, what I would say is try only to do courses that will actually make a meaningful impact in your day-to-day practice, unless you're actually going to have opportunities to, say, do echocardiography. Probably don't jump to doing something like that because it's going to be a time commitment, an energy commitment, and unless you practice the skill, you will forget it all. And It might look good on your CV, but your time could be better spent doing something else. Certainly, though, would recommend ALS for anyone who's interested in anesthesia because those skills are incredibly important and you're going to need it for the entirety of your career, regardless of what field of medicine you do, really. If you're interested and have the time and energy, airway courses are very useful. They can be somewhat advanced, but... If you are interested in the area, you will find it absolutely fascinating. So I certainly would recommend AOA courses. There is also a trend that a lot of people are doing a master of critical care medicine, these kind of relatively large commitments in terms of both time and money. And sorry to say, I am also one of those people who have gone down that path. I think the main thing is balancing it against the other commitments in your life. And you can actually space out these master's courses relatively well, you know, one subject a semester. And they are actually genuinely useful content. I've done physiology for anesthesia, pharmacology for anesthesia, hemostasis, acute pain. These are very clinically relevant things, whether you're working in intensive care or or anesthesia, and you can actually apply that knowledge. And it does form a basis when you come back around to study for the primary exam. It actually is useful, even though it might seem like, oh, it's just a fancy thing to put on your CV.
0: Wow. I have not heard about that master's degree in particular. I know there's a master's of period medicine, but times times are changing. Mm. I know also some people add a different dimension to their CV by saying that they're interested in teaching and they do these short courses like ALS and then are invited back as an instructor. Yeah. Did you go down that path or have you got any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah. So I, I definitely know of friends who've been asked to to become ALS instructors. And I think that's a really good thing to not only keep your own skills up and share knowledge, but also obviously it looks good on your CV. But yeah, like I think in the end, if you're finding something that is related to what you're doing and you feel passionate about it, you should go for it. And I personally really enjoyed teaching and i Did a few lectures for clinical school students. It was a lot of fun getting quite positive feedback from people. And it's a great learning experience for yourself as well.
0: Moving on, as I said at the start, people would have just found out whether they've got on the training program for next year or not. For the people who have got on the training program, what would you say to them?
1: Yeah, I would say... A huge congratulations. You've made it. It's very likely has been quite challenging. But the thing is, it's really only just beginning, and the primary exam is sitting there waiting for you. (laughs) I, I guess probably the first thing now is figuring out what you want to do next in terms of do you really hunker down and try and study straight away and try and sit it as early as you can? Or do you try and take a breather and relax? and then really start ramping up and sit at the second possible sitting. And that is a very difficult decision.
0: I've done a whole podcast episode on that very question.
1: So I guess go and listen to that one.
0: What would you say to the people who unfortunately have missed out?
1: Mm. Well, I would say is I know how you feel. I've been there and it is not a uh, nice place to be, but... I think if you really know that this is the field for you, don't give up because there is light at the end of the tunnel and in very much the same way that if you're attempting a difficult intubation, if you have trouble the first go, make sure you actually make some meaningful changes and optimize everything as much as possible before trying again and sit down, reflect on everything that goes into the application and break it down into the each of its components and each of the components within those and say, well, what are my strengths? How can I capitalise on those? But also what are my weaknesses and how how can I actually address them from the ground up? Definitely stay positive and look to the future because you, you never know what's going to happen.
0: Oh, good advice there, George. I should add also, I suppose, last year was the first year that the ASA had a PMET pre-vocational and medical education training event for exactly that to help people try and get that information that you were talking about before of talking with colleagues about how they got on the program and also help with interview skills and so forth so hopefully we can continue to support people who are in that position of trying to get on the program yeah absolutely and and also thanks to you for joining in on that event i think you're one of our panelists did a great job
1: oh thank you very happy to help
0: is there anything else that you want to say for people who are trying to get on the program or just starting out on the program?
1: Yeah, look, reflecting on my journey and what I didn't realize the importance of earlier on is that it, it's finding this combination of positivity, confidence, and perseverance in those times when you feel a bit beaten down by the process and building yourself back up with those things is is really important. So finding something that you really enjoy and working on building that sense of achievement back up and working through and getting over that negativity because it, it can definitely cycle and spin out of control if you, if you let it. Take the time to center yourself again because you will feel shaken and it, it's not a reflection on you to say you're not suited for this profession. That's not the message. It might feel like that. But it's just a matter of mathematics and there are so many people who are worthy of being part of the training program, but only so few positions. And someone is going to be disappointed. But if you let that weigh on you and consume you, then that's not going to lead anywhere good.
0: What did you do to remain positive?
1: I think the COVID lockdown last year came at a reasonable time for me. With all the extra spare time, I actually channeled that into physical fitness. And I started from basically not being able to run. And then eventually after about six months, I did a half marathon.
0: Well done. Well <laughs> Thank done. you.
1: And that, that sense of achievement and doing something good for yourself really helped with building my own confidence, and my positivity. And it does actually also require a lot of perseverance. And those things are the same qualities that you really need for, for this application process, but also for the specialty in itself.
0: That's good advice for life in general. It takes that self-reflection. But looking for something that you find gives you confidence, you get those small wins, they further build your confidence and, and then can restore your positivity. Yeah. Good advice and and perhaps very sage at this time as well as we're facing rising COVID numbers and just a crazy amount of work in areas that we don't normally work in. Absolutely. Well, That was great. It's been wonderful chatting with you. I hope by getting this out there, we can help restore some people's positivity and also just give people some insights into what it's like getting onto the anaesthetic training program nowadays. So thank you for your time today.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Well, thank you, George, for such a candid and genuine look at what it took for you to get onto the program. I hope you enjoyed listening to that conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with George. And I really do wish him, as well as everyone who got on the program, all the best with their studies for the first part exam. We did mention a number of resources there for people who are trying to get on the program. So the first one is that earlier this year, we had an event with Dr. Lynn Hemmings, who's a medical education advisor from Tasmania, who shared with us her tips for how to ace the interview. We still have the recording of that and that is available on the ASA website and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. What we also provided at that event was a chance to meet registrars. We also hosted a second event where people could meet registrars and hear from them directly about what they did to get on the program because it differs slightly from state to state. Now, neither of those networking events were recorded. You had to be there if you wanted those tips. We are looking to holding similar events in 2022. So if you'd like to be notified of them, then you will if you're an ASA member. Becoming an ASA member is free for pre-vocational doctors. And again, I'll put a link to the joining form in the show notes. You do need to find an anaesthetist who is an ASA member to vouch for you. But hopefully that gets you expressing your interest in anaesthesia. Another benefit of membership is that you will get a copy of the Australian Anaesthetist magazine, which George mentioned earlier in the podcast. That is one of the publications that the ASA produces. It's like a coffee table style magazine. But it's where you'll be able to read about some of the topics that are being discussed in anaesthetic circles at the moment, such as I mentioned, gender equity. It comes out four times a year and is available online as well as a printed version for members. If you have any other queries or questions about getting on the program, then please do shoot them through to us. The best email is asa.org.au. Until then, I hope you're staying positive. I hope you're staying well. And as always, hope you're staying safe out there. This episode of the Australian Anesthesia Podcast was produced by the Australian Society of Anesthetists, otherwise known as the ASA. More episodes can be found on the ASA website, asa.org.au. Don't forget to follow or subscribe to receive the latest episodes. And of course, you're welcome to share them as widely as you wish. Please send any feedback to the ASA by emailing asa at asa.org.au. Music was by Mark Suss, and we hope you enjoyed listening.